Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started since it's a couple minutes after 3.30. Uh, thanks a lot for coming to the uh, latest installment of the Globalization Institutions and Economic Security uh, Workshop Series. As always, we thank the Political Science Department and the Mershon Center for our funding and uh, the Mershon Center staff for helping us out a lot, as they always do. I'm pleased to welcome Catherine Weaver. Kate comes to us from the University of Texas at Austin where she's a faculty member at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and research coordinator for the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law. She received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin, after which she was a research fellow at the Brookings Institution and assistant, an assistant professor for several years at the University of Kansas. Kate also serves as a co-editor of the Review of International Political Economy. In addition to several articles and book chapters, Kate is the author of Hypocrisy Trap, The World Bank and the Poverty of Reform, which was published last year by Princeton University Press. And interestingly, from a Marchand perspective, Hypocrisy Trap received the Chadwick Alger Prize for Best Book on International Organizations and Multilateralism from the International Studies Association, as well as the Harold Laswell Prize from the Society of Policy Scientists. Her current book project is on the politics of accountability and evaluation in international organizations. Building on this work, her talk today looks at evaluation, learning, and performance at the IMF. Kate will talk for about 30 minutes, and her presentation will be followed by uh, comments from a discussant, Aaron Graham, who's a PhD student in political science. Thanks for coming. Kate? I guess I have to turn this on. Is this working? Okay. Um, well, I will apologize in advance. Um, you're going to get sort of a eagle's eye view and a worm's eye view of my new book project. Um, I'm sort of a, an odd researcher in the sense that I'm a, very much a barefoot empiricist, but I put myself down deep into the weeds, and then I ask really big questions, and then somewhere, sometime five years down the road, it all comes together. So you're seeing the bookends of my new project. Um, which has this very um, cumbersome title right now, the IO Learning Curve, with a long subtitle. It wouldn't be academic if it didn't have a subtitle. So, but the basic sort of starting point of this, or the, the um, sort of stimulus for my ideas, I have to go with my observation about what I call the, the international financial institution, or the IFI dilemma, in three parts. It's basically, if you observe the international financial architecture today, you can very much see that there's a tripartite crisis going on with international financial institutions. That of a legitimacy crisis, um, particularly surrounding the IMF and the World Bank, an effectiveness crisis which questions the degree to which these institutions have actually had some res positive result on the ground in the past 60 years. And then, of course, especially with the IMF until the recent financial crisis, there were a lot of questions regarding the relevancy of these institutions 60 years after their creation. This sort of tripartite crisis has not only sort of incited a lot of sort of policy debate about the future of these institutions, it's also invoked a lot of sort of deep reflection within these institutions about redefining their, their relevance for the, the, the next century. Now, the policy world, and I'll speak a lot about policy today because I'm now in a policy school, and I have to do that. There is sort of this presumption of a panacea for the, this tripartite crisis for the IFIs. And in particular, there's a lot of legislation going on right now in the United States concerning enhanced transparency, accountability, and evaluation policies and practices for these institutions. And the basic idea here is that if you make these institutions more transparent, if you increase their accountability and representation, make them more democratic, 
and you evaluate them more, that somehow all of this will feed into greater IO learning and change, and they will, in fact, become more effective, relevant institutions. I call this the presumed panacea because there are a lot of, there's a lot of naivete and sort of lack of, of rich knowledge about how exactly transparency policies, accountability policies, and evaluation policies actually work across these institutions and to what effect. And what I'm actually observing is that a lot of these policies backfire. They don't lead to greater effectiveness. They don't lead to greater legitimacy and so forth. So we need to know a lot more about what we're getting ourselves into when we make recommendations regarding these policies. So here are my eagle-eye questions that are sort of driving my new book project. They're very early, rough ideas. The first is a question I have is simply descriptive. I want to know why we observe very clear variation in terms of when, where, and high, inter uh, how international financial institutions adopt very distinct policies regarding transparency, accountability, and independent evaluation. In fact, if you look across sort of the major IFEs, you know, the World Bank and the IMF being on opposing ends, you find that in the World Bank, for example, you've had an independent evaluation department since 1973. It has 170 staff members. It accounts for 3% of the regular administrative budget of the World Bank. Um, and it's had very little effect upon actual World Bank policy and practices. Go across the street to the International Monetary Fund, as I'll talk about, they didn't have an independent evaluation until 2001. It has 12 staff members. It accounts for a very small part of the administrative budget, and nonetheless, it seems to have more impact. So how can we simply, as a starting point, explain to understand variation in terms of when IOs adopt these kinds of policies? I'll talk specifically about independent evaluation today. And who or what shapes those decisions regarding when these policies and, and structures are adopted, in what form, and so forth? The second question I'm interested in is the effect of this variation in the policies and practices in terms of I.O. performance, which is something I, I'm working on for Alex's project on I.O. performance. And particularly, I want to understand the effect of these policies on two things, the legitimacy of the I.O.s and the actual effectiveness or performance of the I.O.s. Two very, very different questions. But as you'll see, sort of the purpose of transparency and accountability and independent evaluation is twofold to enhance legitimacy of these institutions at a point in time where they're very much in a legitimacy crisis, but also to improve their performance. And how are those two things related? How would we measure and observe the variation in structures on these particular outcomes? Okay. Number three, I have five. Three is how can we better understand and empirically explain the apparent tensions that I sort of just pointed out? between the mechanisms of accountability, transparency, and evaluation, and the outcomes and legitimacy and effectiveness. It's one of those big puzzles in my mind. How do we know when enhanced evaluation actually increases legitimacy of an organization? What kind of measures would we need to point to to understand? Legitimacy is a matter of perception. It may very well be that a certain kind of evaluation increases legitimacy among the eyes of donor states, or borrower states, but it does the exact opposite in terms of civil society organizations. So when we try to sort of say that there's a link between transparency, evaluation, and legitimacy, how are we actually measuring 
that particular dependent variable. And who gets to measure it is actually the political question. And the same with effectiveness is, you know, what are we talking about? How do we measure I.O. performance? How do we know whether or not evaluation is actually in causing in improvements in performance or not? You know, you know there's, there's a lot of sort of a spurious correlation that's drawn between increased number of evaluations and improvements in, let's say, the economic rates of return to lending projects. But connecting those dots is a very difficult empirical process. How do we know when evaluation is actually producing this particular outcome? So, and in particular, what I'll talk about later is the paradox, which is when do you see sort of transparency and evaluation policies that are adopted to enhance legitimacy actually undermining the goal of effectiveness and vice versa? Because what you actually find is the evaluation structures that are set up to make the IMF more popular may be exactly the opposite of the kind of evaluation structures you need to actually provide the kind of candid, blunt evaluation necessary to improve I.O. performance. And so how do you manage that tension between the goals of evaluation? Finally, you know, I sort of, as in my inductive process, I want to think about how we can start to construct the testable theory of how the policies of accountability, transparency, and independent evaluation contribute or not to I.O. learning and change. This very much stems from my previous work where I, I look very closely at processes of how I.O.s actually change, the case study of the World Bank. And I.O. change itself is sort of this uh, neglected question in the I.O. field, but even more so, we don't really know how I.O.s learn as bureaucratic entities. And so I'm trying to get at a theory of I.O. learning that draws from sociological theory and to say and apply it to international governmental organizations. And I think that transparency, accountability, and independent evaluation are assumed to contribute to I.O. learning, but we don't know exactly how. So something needs to be said there. And then, of course, what are the variables that affect whether or not these policies actually lead to I.O. learning and change? I suspect it has a lot to do with intervening variables such as power politics of the organizations, which vary tremendously across cases, the bureaucratic cultures, which also tremendous varies, uh, tremendously, and quite frustratingly, individual personalities, which uh, is hard as a social scientist to admit that personalities matter so much when you're trying to construct a theory, but once you get down in the weeds and you ground through some of this, you realize that it's an incredibly important variable. And then finally, you know, so I'm putting on my policy hat, what I'm interested in is the extent to which we can draw causal connections, how we can draw feasible policy prescriptions regarding institutional design of accountability, transparency, and evaluation policies. And I've recently been involved in several policy discussions in D.C., actually about 12 hours ago, that uh, sort of uh, account for this. And... There's a tremendous amount of interest in terms of how we can design evaluation units, how we can design transparency policies to produce greater effectiveness, but no one really knows what those things look like. So a plan methodology for my book, it's a comparative case study of eight institutions, uh, IMF, World Bank, UN Development Program, Inter-American Development Bank, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and the Bank of International Settlements. It's a huge mouthful. 
Um, but essentially, these are chosen quite carefully. They're all within a, a pretty distinct issue area of uh, finance and development. So I think that they're comparable. But also within this, you see huge variation in terms of age, size, and impact of transparency, accountability policies, and evaluation practices. In particular, I put in the last two case studies recently because the OECD and the Bank of International Settlements are actually IOs that have not yet adopted independent evaluation units. And the question is why? How do you get away with being a modern international organization and not have independent evaluation? My methodology is basically uh, premised on archival and interview data. I do very intense ethnographic work. Um, I do hundreds of interviews um, on site. Archive access has, has recently become a, a lot easier um, because of progress in information disclosure. There's a lot of rich material there. I analyze internal and external documents, emphasis on the internal because it's really what's written in informal memos that's a lot more revealing than external documents. Those are actually quite easy to get once you've done your interviews because it snowballs. Testimonies and commentaries are also very important. These institutions are, are, are like sieves. They're just, they're just leaking. They're like, you know, sinking titanics. And all the dissenters are taking every opportunity to um, vet. And so that's the sort of rich source of data as long as you triangulate it with the insiders, the stories. And then finally, participant and non-participant observation of sort of these, these policies and practices. Um, in particular, in the last year or so, I've been invited to become part of a couple of evaluation teams. Um, so I'll get a chance to see what it's like from the inside of the evaluation units. And then also, I'm participating in running some of the legislation right now out of U.S. Congress on information disclosure and, transpo and transparency policies. So I get to sort of participate in the making of the sausage and see how that works. Um, and the non-participant observation, I'll also be sort of uh, the, the quiet observer in the room for uh, evaluation training and um, in inviting to several in internal meetings so far at these IOs uh, just to be a fly on the wall. Okay. Now that's, that's the really, really big picture of my new book, so it's, it's pretty messy at this point. Um, Peter Kastenstein once told me that a great book takes 10 years, and I, I took him quite literally until I look at his CV and realize he had published six books the year he told me that. But nonetheless, I truly believe that patient research here has its payoff. So I've started very much with a, a very distinct case study of the IMF. And my motives are quite unscientific. I spent eight years working on the World Bank, and I was really tired of it. I didn't want to do anything else in the World Bank, so I looked across the street and said, huh, that looks really interesting. The IMFs are really hard not to crack. I think I'd like to do that. And I was also sort of driven by two puzzles I observed in the case of the IMF. Number one is simply, why didn't the IMF have an independent evaluation office until 2001? How is this possible? The World Bank has had one since 1973. Most other multilateral development banks have adopted them. Most international organizations be considered legitimate um, IOs in the world have independent evaluation. So why is it the IMF didn't have one just so late in the game? How did it get away with not having one? Just wanted to answer that question. And then once I started to get into the empirical case, I had another puzzle. 
why was it that this new creature, the IEO, despite its infancy and its lack of resources, very small staff, very small budget, why is everyone telling me in DC that it has had more of an impact on IMF policies and practices compared to older and better resource evaluation offices? Particularly, you know, as, as um, sort of rival siblings, the IMF and the World Bank are always competing with one another. And so the big story in, in D.C. among evaluators is why it is that the World Bank with this huge beast of an evaluation unit that's been around for so long can't seem to get any traction within the organization. It's been heavily marginalized. Yet this lean, mean evaluation machine, the IMF, you can actually track where there's been some pretty significant policy changes adopted in the fund as a result of its evaluations. But then we're eight years into the IEO, and I'm just starting to hear that perhaps, you know, the flash is over, the splash is done, and the IEO's influence is now waning. So it was just sort of a temporary phenomenon. Is there something to do with the newness of the IEO that matters? And what can we take away from that in terms of design implications? So the case study that Aaron is tasked with discussing, I apologize, very dense story, process traces the evolution of the independent evaluation office. It's sort of the untold story. Uh, no one really knows that much about the IEO. It's new, you know, no, it hasn't been around long enough to be a subject of, of research. So one of the things I did was uh, go in and just tell the story of, of where this thing came from, how it was created within the IMF. So I started with iCovel Research, which is very much facilitated Ironically, by the fact that the IMF is much more open and accessible than people give it credit for. Turns out that you can get full transcripts of board minutes as long as they're older than five years. And also because people don't leave the IMF unless they're forced to through layoffs, they stick around for 30, I think the average tenure there is 32 years. You know, they come in at age 28 as economists and they just don't leave. But if you're Jacques Pollock, when he, you know, Jacques Pollock will sit you down and say, young lady, I was at Bretton Woods. I'm just this wealth of institutional memory. And so it's very easy to go back and process, trace the creation of a particular unit because the people are there, the documents are there, and uh, it's quite easy to do. I think I did it in about three weeks. So I processed, traced the debate on the creation of the IEO since the early 1990s. Interesting to find that the idea was floated a long time ago and it spent 10 years basically on the board table before anything happened. Interviewed the IEO staff, pretty easy, there are only 13 of them. Interviewed a lot of the consultants that work for the IEO, internal fund staff and management, executive directors, some civil society groups that have been closely following this, and then some think tank experts like uh, people at the Center for Global Development who are uh, evaluating evaluation functions. As I think all told, I've done about 45 or so interviews since 2008. So part of the story is, is trying to answer the question why we don't see an IEO until 2001. It's a story of resistance. It tells us a lot about sort of some of the um, practical conundrums that institutions face when they're actually trying to create an evaluation function something that people who just advocate for transparency don't quite fully grapple with. So number one was the concern that if you create an independent evaluation unit in the IMF, would staff then perceive 
that they're going to be held accountable for IMF failures. And will this translate uh, into them becoming more cautious in program design, becoming more risk averse? Second concern was purely financial. Independent evaluation is expensive. And sort of despite conventional wisdom, the IMF actually isn't a flush institution. And when it was being debated in the mid-1990s, there was a lot of discussion, and Candace as managing director was leading this, that the cost of independent evaluation self-standing unit was too great during a time that the, the IMF budget was quite stretched, in particular because of increased surveillance activities that had with the sort of arrival of all the new post-Soviet states into the IMF membership. They simply didn't have enough staff to go around, and they didn't have the means of hiring new ones. A third was an intrinsic difficulty of how you actually evaluate fund performance. This, this goes, I think, very well to Alex's project with, with Tammy Gutner. Truth of the matter is, is how do you really know when the fund has had an impact on macroeconomic outcomes in the countries that it bails out? How do you know it is the fund conditionality package or set of advice that leads to the outcomes you preserve as opposed to other sets of variables, such as exogenous economic facts or other domestic variables? question is, if you're evaluating fund performance, you need to be able to discern that causal relationship, and they just didn't know how to do it. So the risk-averse solution was don't evaluate, because the last thing you want to do is come to the conclusion that the fund has failed, when in fact you can't attribute the outcome to the fund performance. There was also a lot of concern. The, the original proposal, which was pragmatically driven uh, by finance concerns and staffing concerns, was that this would be a structure that reported directly to the managing director of the IMF, or their equivalent of the president, and would draw from inside staff, which was originally perceived uh, by the board as absolutely essential. Now, it's kind of contrary. Independent evaluation, but it's being done by insiders. Isn't that a conflict of interest? But there's a lot of discussion on the board about expertise and authority. Who else would be qualified to actually evaluate what the fund does? It's a very technocratic institution. Who the hell understands exactly what it is that it, it, it does? I mean, it has 2,000 economists that work for the fund, and that's about it for the universe of people who can actually understand what the institution does. So if you don't draw from inside staff, who do you hire to evaluate? Who's got the expertise to do that? Nonetheless, if you hire from inside staff, what does it do to the perception of independence? It doesn't look like a very independent unit if you draw from the inside, and therefore would undermine the other goal of enhancing legitimacy for the institution, because no one would believe a report that came from staff from the inside, um, particularly if it was a positive report. It would just be thrown away as biased. There's also a lot of internal competition in the fund with another unit called the Policy Development Review Section, which uh, the Policy Development Department uh, basically did internal evaluations, and they reported internally. None of this was ever publicized. And there's a lot of sentiment that this was good enough. There was no need to replicate all this evaluation in an independent unit with a separate staff and budget. And a lot of the, the executive directors on the board actually said that a lot of the justification for independent evaluation was, was overblown. 
I mean, a lot of people say we need independent evaluation of the fund because the fund is a very homogenous organization. There's no internal debate. There's no dissent. Everyone toes the party line. Um, and therefore, we need an independent evaluation to give a fresh voice and perspective. The board of directors said, no, actually, from our perspective, there's a lot of dissent within inside the organization. We're going to have enough different perspectives. We don't need to create a whole new unit. And there was a lot of dissent on the board. And my paper actually kind of quotes from these transcripts and so forth, going back and forth. And um, a lot of executive directors said, we just don't need more bureaucracy. Very much what you would expect, actually, from fund economists. And finally, a really interesting point of resistance was sort of an ideological one. A lot of the key actors involved in this debate in the mid-1990s made the argument that the IMF doesn't need an independent evaluation unit because it's not like other IOs. The IMF is more like a central bank, has culture like the central bank, a structure and purpose like central banks, and central banks don't have independent evaluation. Therefore, the fund doesn't need independent evaluation. And then sort of this effort to redefine the IMF away from its IGO character, governmental characteristic, to something that looked much more like a central bank. And not surprisingly, a lot of these directors were former central bankers. So they were bringing their ideology to the table. But then in the late 1990s, you see a big shift. It's very evident in the board transcripts and the interviews. And number one was a huge norm change. All of a sudden, in these discussions, you see a lot of sort of reference to emerging global norms that expect the IMF as an international organization to have independent evaluation. It was essential for any modern IO. It was a symbol of good standing. And therefore, it became inappropriate for the IMF not to have independent evaluation. And so for those who talk about international norms and world politics, this is a great example. Because there's no materialist, rationalist reason driving the IMF at this point. It's completely norm-driven. And contrary to a lot of the interests of the executive directors who switched their positions, same executive directors changing their attitude towards this, using this language. The second is increasing donor state pressure uh, for results-based management, which became all the fad and still is. In particular, there was a lot of U.S. congressional pressure at the time uh, via financial leverage surrounding uh, the funding of a new program called the New Arrangements to Borrow, which I'll spare you the details of that. But that created sort of a, uh, an entry point for the U.S. executive director to start to push for these reforms. Otherwise, the fund wouldn't get the money for this new particular program. And finally, there's a lot of NGO pressure. Uh, suddenly... NGOs who were really overly focused on the World Bank and other multilateral development banks start to pay attention to the IMF. This is mobilized around 1994. It's the 50th anniversary of the IMF and the World Bank. There's this massive march in D.C. 50 years is enough. All these NGOs stop to, uh, start to uh, monitor the IMF, write reports in the IMF, work with civil society groups, and create sort of this spotlight on the problem of IMF transparency and accountability. And they start to call for an independent evaluation group. 
So finally, you see the IEO created in 2001. Um, and it was in the books before 9-11, so we can't attribute anything to a 9-11 effect. Since then, however, you see a lot of sort of the challenges in designing and empowering the IEO um, through the last eight years of experience. And here I'm really interested in sort of unpacking the, the dilemmas facing independent evaluation, in part to draw inferences for how we think about designing independent evaluation. In this case, maybe reforming the IEO at this point in time now that we were eight years in. So the number one problem that immediately becomes apparent, and the IEO actually went through its own external evaluation in 2006, so we can also draw from this. Number one is there's always a problem of, of establishing both actual and perceived independence. Actual in terms of the formal rules that draw boundaries for the autonomy of the IEO and the way, whether or not the IEO is actually perceived as autonomous from the fund by various groups, be it the staff, the management, the board, civil society groups outside other IOs and so forth. One of the huge questions here is really about staff selection. It's really, really mundane, but it's a great principal agent question. They've always had this trouble of how do you staff the IEO and how do you select its director? Because as I said before, you need sufficient expertise to be able to do the job, but you also need to be perceived as objective and independent. So do you hire external consultants who don't really have the inside information and the experience to evaluate, but will be perceived as independent, a legitimacy effect you're seeking? Or do you hire from the inside so that you know you can get all the information and analyze it, but you forsake that perception of, of objectivity? And so they've been going back and forth on this. They drew a lot of lessons from the World Bank, and they basically struck a, a, a compromise in which they draw half of their evaluation teams for any given project from the outside, half from the inside, and they also, when they staff the IEO, they give them the right of return to the fund, which is a very important clause because it basically means that fund had the staff had the incentive to go to work for the IEO because they can always go back to the regular fund staff where the action is after they've worked there. But there's also a problem with that because if you know you're going back to the regular fund staff, what is your incentive to write a really critical report? Especially if you're trying to pander to your, your manager and a particular unit in the fund, the last thing you want to do is come out on record criticizing that, that unit's performance. So all these tricky issues the second, of course, is one already mentioned as well, is the problem of ambiguous or non-existent metrics to, to assess fund performance. How do we really know when an observed outcome is due to something the IMF has done or not? And in this case, this has been used very much by critics of the IEO who simply say that um, these are not very good evaluations because they don't establish clear benchmarks um, when they say there's failure, it's, it's, it's really a, it's sort of a causal inference problem. And so, so the lack of being able to clearly say success or failure is a really a problem for establishing the credibility of the evaluation reports. And they've been opened up to all kinds of accusation of manipulation or bias 
is basically, well, if you want to see failure, you're fine failure because you can't prove to us that you have any objective measure. Third is, once again, this difficulty of balancing candor with credibility because evaluation has many constituencies, many different audiences. And there are several problems here. Number one is principal-agent model of principal preference heterogeneity, basically meaning many, many political masters for the IMF, none of them want the same thing. And in this case, there's a lot of disagreement between the IMS major member states over the scope of IEO authority and the work program. And the dilemma here for the IEO is often it chases after some target, some evaluation programs to please some subset of the board, which then pisses off another subset of the board. Can I say that on camera? Okay, excellent. And they end up sort of gaining credibility in one set of eyes and losing it in another, and they feel like they're spinning their wheels all the time. And what's important here is also to recognize that in the fund, it's not just the donor states that matter. And in fact, increasingly, it's the powerful borrowing states that really drive staff behavior because the fund is desperate to lend money. Even in this financial crisis, the IMF is always seeking to reestablish its relevance. Prior to the financial crisis this last year, the IMF actually had, had negative net lending. It was about ready to go out of business. It was laying off 20% of its staff. And so it needs to reestablish itself. It needs to please the borrowers. And this has shifted the bargaining relationship in a very significant way. And it also means it's shifted the dynamic of the debate over the role of the I.O. because borrowers have a very different sort of a set of demands in terms of what they want to see from evaluation. And it's most certainly not sort of a, a critical review of what the borrowers did in a particular program. So they're seeking to censor those findings. And so one of the things they did is they limited the scope of what the IEO did. They're not allowed to evaluate individual loans to do distinct borrowers. So they can't, for example, evaluate whether or not the loan to Iceland worked. But they can do a big program review of the IMS effectiveness and surveillance. They can't evaluate borrower countries specifically. It's too sensitive. And that really limits what the IEO can actually do. Also, there's a lot of concern that IEO reports are going to arm external critics. In other words, if its purpose is to provide blunt, candid assessment of IMF performance in order to improve IO learning, isn't that also going to give the civil society groups, the critics, exactly what they want? And there's a lot of concern, and the executive directors came right out and said this, that this is counter to what we need as an organization in order to survive. Don't basically empower those pesky NGOs by just providing them with negative information. And so there's a lot of sort of discussion about, ongoing discussion about how reports are vetted and how they're publicized and who would have access to the information because of this, this fear. And finally, there's also concern that critical evaluations, um, you know, if the IO actually does its job and provides blunt, very blunt, candid assessments, then this is going to engender distrust among the IMF staff. 
because they don't like to be sort of held accountable for my IMF failures. The entire success of an evaluation depends on being able to get information out of fund staff. If you think about it, you need to go in and get staff to tell you about how loans were negotiated, what information they had, how they acted on that information, what resulted. A lot of that is just not public information. So if you can't get staff to talk, you can't do your evaluation. But if you're entirely dependent on getting their trust by promising them positive sort of performance review, then you're, you're not really doing your job either. And it becomes this very tricky balance. And finally, there's a point about the sort of the dilemma of trying to build a culture of learning at the fund. This goes to my overall question about IELTS learning. There's a lot of ironies here. Because actually, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said in terms of evaluation has a, a very high potential for inciting some organizational learning in the fund, in part because it's such a hierarchical, homogenous organization. I had it described to me that uh, the IMF is like the Red Army and the World Bank is, is like the Boy Scouts. Right? And in the Red Army, the general screens and all the soldiers fall in line and they do what they're told, regardless of whether or not they want to. And the World Bank, which they're called the Boy Scouts or university faculty, is like herding the cats. The president can scream all he wants, but staff don't fall into line necessarily. It's very decentralized and a messy organization. So ironically, there's, a, there's an opportunity here for independent evaluation reports to have a big impact, as long as they can convince the managing director of the validity of their recommendations. Because once the managing director signs on to a policy recommendation and agrees to change something, all he has to do is dictate it, and everyone falls into line. Very, very different in the World Bank, where you see you know, Zelik, Wolfowitz, Wolfensen down on the line, trying to issue policy change and nothing ever happening in terms of actual change in staff behavior. Here, I think the behavioral change is quick, but it may not be sustainable because they don't actually internalize the change goals. Nonetheless, all this de depends on leadership buy-in, whether or not the managing director will seriously take the recommendations of independent evaluation, believes that independent evaluation is important, and that can change on a dime depending on who the managing director is. Also for design implications, you've got the sort of question of formal accountability tools. And the example here is they instituted this practice of periodic monitoring reports. This is where my stuff gets really tedious. So they have this rule essentially where once the IEO issues a set of recommendations, the board has to issue a response, which means the board has to read the report, which is not the case in the World Bank. There's no accountability mechanism that says the board actually has to pay attention to what the independent evaluation group does. So here the board has to actually schedule a separate session in which they discuss the findings of an IEO report. That's important. Then the managing director and the, the management of the fund staff actually have to write a written response to the evaluation and a plan of action for how they will follow through. And then one year after that, they have to give a follow-up report to say what they've done. 
that's a pretty good enforcement mechanism in terms of assuring that rhetorical policy change actually turns into something more genuine. That said, it's only been in place a couple of years, and I've heard a lot about how they do the first periodic monitoring report, and they're not required to do anything afterwards, so the change soon disappears. Finally, also, um, to the extent that we can discern any actual impact or influence the I.O., there may actually be evidence that its effect is, is more on spurring what I call preemptive internal evaluation and policy reflection. There's a lot of panic reaction in the IMF. And in particular, staff realize that if the IEO is about to publish a big scathing report on what's, what it's doing in technical assistance or surveillance functions or exchange rate advice, they will preempt it by issuing their own internal report and a set of proclamations about policy change so that they can credibly claim that they've already reflected on this problem, they've taken action, and it takes the power away from the IEO recommendations. And so you start to see this in terms of internal competition. The PDR unit has actually developed their own sort of task force, and they, they follow the work program, the IEO, and they strategically do reports that are published one month prior to IEO report publication so that they could undercut them. But that's a very interesting institutional dynamic that, but nonetheless it's important because it means that um, there's, there's some change going on here. But it, it, the formal mechanisms by which that happening may be very different than what we may perceive. So finally, sort of what I observe in terms of a, of a big picture, and this is sort of what I want to try to now test in other organizations, is this paradox. And that is the seemingly dual purposes of independent evaluation that we see in international financial institutions today. This purpose first of improving organizational learning by providing that candid, objective, independent performance analysis and giving that information to relevant principals who could then use it to exercise greater oversight and accountability to improve IO performance, improve effectiveness. That's one job, but that assumes a critical function for evaluation. The second stated purpose of the evaluation unit in this charter mandate is to enhance external credibility and legitimacy. In other words, the purpose of the IEO is to demonstrate through their independent assessment that the IMF is actually doing its job well. Now, those are two very contradictory purposes. Uh, how can it both provide criticism and praise at the same time and do so credibly? And the, the more I sort of ask this question about to what extent is this paradox evident in your daily life, everyone I'm talking to says, yes, this is a huge problem that we have to you know, basically use evaluation to prove effectiveness and legitimacy. And as I go to other organizations, I'm hearing the same story. So there's something to be unpacked here in terms of the paradox of independent evaluation in modern IOs and what that means for, for design of evaluation. Because how do you start to balance these two things in the actual structure and rules for independent evaluation? What is most important 
Um, how do you try to achieve one goal or the other? It's a question I haven't answered yet, but it's a really interesting one. Because it also proves that evaluation is not a sort of straightforward thing in these IOs and can actually be a very tricky beast. And when we get to the point where we're actually trying to prescribe how to design these evaluation units, how to strengthen them, we have to think through these issues. Do we want to try to make them structured in a way that improves legitimacy? Or do we want to structure them in a way that produces greater performance reflection review? And if so, or do we disconnect these things, or how do we do it? A bunch of unanswered questions. But sort of where it is today, I think that's where I end. So just the start here of this really big project, and I guess it's time for Aaron now to try to sort out a pattern here. Um, and I guess what strikes me about those two sets of factors, um, if you 
seems like all those other factors are just secondary. Like if that's if that's really the if that's sort of a, a widely felt um, perception that I have as a major, then why is it that all these conversations are going on that seem to suggest that well we'd like to have it but we can't give it enough resources or something like that, right? Um, whereas if the other are primary, that is we acknowledge that there's some inherent benefit to having good and you know independent evaluation, but we just don't think we can do it well given constraints then it seems like that other perception can't be that widely held, right? Um, at least that's how it would seem to me logically, but of course you're the one out there getting all of these uh, comments up. But, but anyway, that's what, that's what struck me. Um, and then on a related point, when we get to the question of you know, why it changed, why do we get adoption, um, the, your first big bullet point is that, well now there's, there's a strengthening of this norm that evaluation is necessary, right? Um, but you just told me that the IMF doesn't see itself as one of those other IOs. Um, and so is it the case that the executive directors didn't change their position in their head or something, right? They still don't think that the IMF needs this, but now the external pressure is such, the norm is so strong that they can't avoid it. Or did the executive directors undergo a process by which they now think that the IMF is like other IOs and needs this, and if so, what was that process? Um, yeah, I guess I just kind of wanted that ideational story unpacked a bit, um, since, since in both cases, in terms of why we don't get evaluation and why we do, it's kind of a primary part of the story. Okay. Um, and then in any case, in terms of the importance of the budget stuff, it seems like that doesn't go away necessarily, those budgetary concerns, right? So again, then that made me question, well, is that, the, is that a really important reason they didn't get it, right? If there's still budget concerns that they get it. Right? Does that make sense? Um, okay, so that's the first. Um, the second question has to do with defining actors that are inside and outside the I.O. Um, and I think this might have come, come up before when you presented this paper, if I'm remembering right, from San Francisco, or not with your paper in particular, but other papers. Um, so one thing that really struck me about this story was that the donors, or the, the donor states, I should say, that states on the executive, the executive directors, right, are, are resistant to evaluation. And it struck me as odd because you know, the cases that I've looked at mostly, these are the people, you know, or their equivalent are the ones that are like, demanding more evaluation. Okay, so um, in my story, I often feel like those, those states sitting on the executive board are external to the I.O. Um, a lot of times they're not getting along at all with the I.O. But in your story, it seems like they're more on the same page. Um, you know, they're concerned about information going public. Um, and so it's in, so at certain times it seems like they're internal, like I said, and at other times you say, but they're still concerned about um, an evaluation unit that's reporting directly to the um, to the IMF management that wants to report to them, right? So in which case there's still like some boundary between IMF staff and executive directors. Um, so I think it would just be helpful since you use um, internal and external language when you're talking about credibility later on, right, to just define who's in and who's out. Um, and I think, you know, that might vary across organizations or maybe some people float in and out or something like that, but um, in any case, it's really helpful. Um, and then finally, to go to the second set of questions, which is how do these factors inhibit or not, I guess, these challenges inhibit the influence of evaluation. Um, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I like all of the challenges. They, they seem like they all make sense. Um, I would expect them to all be there empirically. Um, but I thought maybe to start that section, and of course you said that this is part of a big book project, so I'd expect you to have, 
you'll probably talk about performance and what is performance to do first at some point in that book project, right? Um, but since I just had this case study, I think I thought that it would be helpful to sort of start out and say, and now I'm going to talk about how all of these factors are influence Iowa performance. And I've just said that defining performance is hard and ambiguous, but this is what I'm going to talk about, right? This is how I'm going to define it. Um, because otherwise it feels a little, a little bit anecdotal. So, for example, you know, at times you're talking about how it influences organizational learning. At times you're talking about how it influences design. At times it's like the constraints on the evaluation unit, um, all of which can be argued to be part of IELTS performance. But just I didn't really know what it was that we were talking about specifically. And so I think it would just, yeah, given a more social scientific feel or something, if we had that definition up front, it might just help.
disconnected from actual objective measures of whether or not I'm a policy advice actually improved exchange rate stability or helped to prevent a, a financial crisis and so forth. What we usually see is the IMF screwed Brazil. It's an illegitimate organization or it's undemocratic in its representation. It's completely dominated by donor states and so forth. So legitimacy and effectiveness have, have very different audiences. Um, sometimes they have the same audience. I, mean, I think the U.S. actually sees the IMF as very effective and at the same time sees it as illegitimate. And depending on the context in which we're talking about U.S. support for IMF, we see different arguments drawing out. Um, so it, it's, it's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure how to answer it. Um, because they're mutually constituted goals. But they also can be mutually constituted. Thank you. 
perception of profound mishandling of a series of crises leading up to that point, so from Asian financial crisis to Russia to Argentina, how did those empirical events that were by elite level, so Stiglitz coming out, a lot of people say that they still don't recover from no,
but I haven't been able to get permission to do surveys of staff in these institutions, partners external department relations departments won't let me. And also pragmatically I would need thousands upon thousands of dollars to do it because you have staff do so many surveys that you have to give them a fifty dollar gift card to the executive diagram before they answer it. So I just can't do it in, in institutions to scale and size. So if you have any suggestions about sort of methodology of how to sort of tackle some of these causal questions, like I'm already wanting to the answer it, it's just like pragmatically how one person is asking you. Okay. Oh. 
someone in place is just going to promote the IMF. At the same time, staff are incredibly distrustful of this unit. So you've got to put some of the man side of the staff in the How do you do that? So it can take it to pilot. And they have an interim director on this one. They can't get their evaluations done. Who knows what's going to happen? But that's right. The great design question is, and the World Bank is going through this sort of identity crisis as well, because their current director, the IG, is not widely respected outside the organization. And so the staff inside the weapon, because all the reports have been censored, but it also means that no one outside the institution thinks the evaluation group is worth two cents. So, yes, selection of screen and selection of staff matter absolutely. And so it's, it's 
trying to think of an analogy because I'm not too familiar with the evaluation of the performance. But I'm thinking about a, 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 a authoritarian regime where the government has to decide how much opposition to allow. And allowing enough opposition allows you to get some legitimacy in the eyes of the foreign donors. But allowing too much opposition, obviously, is could actually undermine the regime. It seems to me that uh, the IMF is, you know, is performing this task trying to find this optimal point. And there has to be an optimal point. Most people in Congress don't know the idea of exist, and that's the 
So they're more interested in making sure that these treasuries play to the society organization. 